Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to DL Uncut. Now, our next guest is an author and expert in economic and social policy. Her new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, is out now. Please welcome Heather McGee. <laughs> How are you, Ms. McGee? How are you? I'm so good. You know why I'm so good? I spent this morning reading your book, laughing out loud. Yeah. Well, well let me let me be arrogant. Which one? Oh, I have so many. <laughs> I have so many. <laughs> Sounds Which just one? like him. <laughs> okay, excuse me for the first time author, you know. Oh, yeah. um, oh well, he'll brag some more. Surrender White People is my new favorite book on race. Well, <laughs> well, well you know, th- thank you very much. And actually, when we were researching the book, we came about uh, 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 across a lot of things you believe. Now, when you say that racism, um, you contend that racism hurts us all, right? Mm-hmm. But how does it hurt rich white people? Like, how are they hurt by it? Besides hearing our mouths. Yeah. When I say everyone, I'm pretty clear that racism is a tool of rich, white, usually male right. elites to right. divide and conquer among right. working class people. If everyone is a nice way to put everyone who's not currently, anyone who's not hurting right now is not hurt by racism. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I just wanted to get that clear. <laughs> People who heat is on in Texas, they're fine. Right, right. <laughs> I just, I, I make that argument because it's interesting to me. Uh, almost every man-made um, disaster, uh, i.e. what happened in Michigan or now what's going on in Texas, every man-made one is because a greedy white dude uh, yep. knew that what happened or the potential fallout for what was happening wouldn't affect him. And so he was willing to make all of this money, and when it went bad, he would... Uh, j- j- like right now, what's going on in Texas, uh, there's somebody getting uber rich from that, from that very... Yep. For, for the, so, and so there really is no incentive for people to share, particularly powerful people who decide policy, who, uh, who decide legislation. What is their incentive... Uh, for even broaching the subject? Yeah, well, there isn't. And that's why, you know, power concedes nothing without a fight. You know, this is very clearly a question of power. 
in my mind, in my analysis, racism is. You know, I, I tried to solve, you know, to work on issues of economic inequality, the fact that, you know, people don't have health insurance, that they have too much student debt, that their jobs pay poverty wages. And I tried to do it straight, right? I tried to just talk about the economy, to do the research, get the facts, show it to the decision makers and say, look, you could have, you know, trillions of dollars of more economic activity right. if you activity, if you raise the minimum wage, right. yada, yada, yada. Right. But white resentment of people of color was blocking these kinds of solutions, sure, even sure, though they would help sure, the majority sure. of white people. So that's why I wrote this book. Yeah. It's, it's interesting it's, because if you look at trickle-down economics, the premise of that is that I, I will make all this money and some of it will fall out of my pockets and whatever it does, you'll... Like, nothing is built from the ground, from the top down. Nothing. Uh, not, nothing is built from the middle down. If you want to build a stable foundation, it has to be from the bottom up. But we've this Reaganomics notion that we have adopted and that we know is 40, almost 50 years of failure. And we accept it as a as a viable uh, pathway uh, to people moving forward is laughable. And I think that every time people hear um, um, racism, it tells them that they're going to have to feel guilty about what they've done to become this wealthy and the things they've had to do to people to become this wealthy. Mm hmm. Well, you know what? It, to me, it feels like we hit on the formula for creating a solid middle class in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, when it, we really were building the economy from the bottom up. You know, white ethnic immigrants could walk into a factory and walk out set for life. You know, they could go to college for free. They could have subsidized housing. And all of that was racially excluded to black folks. Sure. And what my book talks about is what happened when the civil rights movement said, okay, us too, let's, let's be part of the deal. And basically the white majority then turned their backs on that formula that had created their own prosperity. And now 50 years into what they turned to, which was supporting trickle-down economics, supporting Ronald Reagan, shifting from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, and a, and a really conservative, you know, corporate version of the Republican Party at that, we are seeing the spoils. You know, at the heart of my book is the story of the drained public pool, which every black person knows, you know, right. when they have public pools and then integration, you know, they responded by draining the public pool. So that means white people lost on a pool. Black mm -hmm. folks still don't know sure. how to swim. Sure. And we're just sitting at the bottom of this pool now. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a shame. <laughs> And, you know, we can't fight climate change because white people are resistant to it because they're not sure what it's going to cost them. You know, our schools are underfunded. We got a trillion and a half dollars in student loan debt. You know, our bridges are collapsing. You know, Texas is a perfect example of drained pool politics. It's time to go a different route. And I believe that this book, The Some of Us, you know, it, it took me across the country for three years trying to write this book. I'm actually more hopeful at the end of it because I thought it was gonna be really complicated to solve our big public problems, our economic problems, but all we have to do is just be a little bit less racist. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's gonna happen. <laughs> just don't, don't hate that. niggas but so you know what? much. What's so interesting is that their hate is so strong that they are willing to even sacrifice their own family. Like they don't care when you talk about, you know, the, the, the drained pool. They knew they would suffer and they didn't care. You know, I was hopeful and then I saw what happened January 6th and I thought, wow, they killed their own. They knew they were going in there after their own. So despite how it was going to affect them, they still marched on. And I think that's still the situation that we find ourselves in today. 
Yeah, I mean, if you don't know your history, you know, we're doomed to repeat it. I didn't, I finished the book before January 6th, but I include a long story about Colfax, Louisiana, nice. which was 100 years ago, and it was the exact same thing. There was a, a Democratic election that brought in a multiracial, you know, voting bloc. This white mob attacked the courthouse. Black people came in hundreds to defend it. They slaughtered 100 black folks and burned down the courthouse. They burned down the <laughs> edifice of their own government yeah. rather than submit to a multiracial democracy. What does wow. that sound like? Uh, well, it, it's, it's quintessentially American. It really is. Yeah. Like when people say uh, those who don't learn from history are destined to be, it's not true. Those who don't learn from history are destined to have somebody quoted to them. That's that we make our <laughs> own much. history up. We really do. Uh, like the, the, racism is so ingrained in America. It's almost like uh, when I was a friend, he got shot. I, I was growing up, I had a friend, he got shot. And the doctors told him, look, we if we try to take this out, um, it could kill you. It's it's, mm. it's it's such a you can live with it. Uh, let's hope it doesn't move around. But if it doesn't, you'll live a normal life. If we go in and try that, that's racism in America is so ingrained in us, so such a part of us that to remove it could potentially kill the host. Look at how many holidays you can't have. Look at how many <laughs> schools or bridges or, or uh, statues you can't walk by. It is it is so ingrained in America. That the to, to, you can't take a little piece of it out. You have to deconstruct the whole thing, and I think for them that's a bridge too far. But here's the thing: we are so young, right? This country is so young and so powerful, and we are soon going to be in a place where there is no racial majority by numbers. Right? Sure. Power and money is a different sure. thing. Why not? make a new world here in what was supposed to be a new world? Why not snatch out of the ideals and the promise of this nation something that was worth our people's sacrifice? You know, I'm, you know, a lot of folks are like, I, I'm giving up on America, I'm going. I'm like, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. My people have sacrificed too well, much. I ain't going nowhere. I'm not leaving. <laughs> at all. No, I'm not. And I, and I agree with you. And I think really more than anything else, after a while, reason doesn't work, uh, compassion doesn't work, empathy doesn't work. What works, I, I think what scared people more than anything else was you had an incumbent president who was a demagogue who was willing to use the levers of go, uh, a government in, in, in a duplicitous way and everybody knew what was happening. Like you can't tell me you thought the, the, the election was stolen. Uh, the, the, what, what, he, what he intimated was that somehow black people um, because like, usually when something is, is nigger rigged, it don't work. But, <laughs> but for this what? conceit, <laughs> but what happened was black people voted at about the same rate. It was white people that turned against uh, a, a larger majority of white people that turned against him, and rather than deal with that fact, he would rather say, uh, "I'm going to blame it on them because we're you don't we're the one group of people that you never have to have any proof to blame something on." You don't have to uh, just for criminal. Yep, that's right. It, it just like even even in Texas, they blamed it on the windmills. Windmills are the minorities of, of energy. Like they they're the niggas of energy. They really like they, <laughs> <laughs> these windmills. <laughs> these windmills, they look at it, cause cancer, and they just tear shit up, and they don't work. They fall asleep. <laughs> but, but, but we're we're it is so in the stories that they have told about us that we now believe are so yeah. ingrained in just all elements of our lives. Like, yeah. our oppressors are on the money that we work for. <laughs> and, the like, it's it's so ingrained in us. I just, I don't, I think it has to be a total restructure. And I don't know that, that this country can, can 
really remain or even have any semblance of itself if, if that happens? Well, you know, again, a country that was born and created out of a belief in a hierarchy of human value, that some groups of people are better than others, uh, a country that was born on stolen people, stolen land, and stolen labor does need to be transformed, does need to be remade. But I believe that ultimately, what is a country if not for its people? And that's a the thing they always like to forget on the right, right? Right, We love our country, but we'll let our people starve, right? right? And as, you know, I look at young people today, you know, the youngest generation already has no racial majority, and they are pushing, they are pushing, they are anti-racist, they are blowing up gender, they are saying, save the planet now, they are saying, let us share all equally. That's who America's becoming, whether they like it or not. The desperate nature of this last gasp of white supremacy and patriarchy and greed, it's clear that they know that the writing is on the wall. I have a lot of faith in the youngest generation. I have a lot of faith in them to fulfill America's promise. You saw Amanda Gorman up there, the National Youth Poet Laureate at the right. inauguration, spitting fire and wisdom. I mean... That's what we're becoming. Everybody but else but you know what? And, and I, I just want to push back a bit. The 60s had a bunch of young people who were motivated. Uh, I mean, for its time, they were, there, were, there were a lot of young people who were motivated, who wanted things to change. We had a lot of pivotal changes that was associated with the 60s. And what happened was they got older and they got tired. They got comfortable. Yeah. That, and and I think um, the reason this seems more resonant is because... We are more engaged. I, I think yeah. that, that that so I think um, there have been examples of, of of the young taking us, but so far, and then a lot of times taking it back too. A lot of times say, taking it back, and I think that what makes this and to your point, uh, this so urgent is that now people that were more apathetic are engaged mm. and people That's that right. were more disconnected are now engaged. And I think there is a, 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 a st stick to itiveness that elementally has never existed here. Yes. It has become a personality trait to be an active citizen. Sure. It has yeah. become an activity. It's become a social thing to do. It's become part of folks identity. And, you know, I mean, I wrote this book, um, as a black woman, as an invitation to a multiracial America. I wrote it for black people who have to work with white people. I wrote it for black people who are, you know, showing up at their city council and having to deal with this desire to avoid the truth of the issue. You know, for me, obviously, I am by no means saying that racism doesn't always hit its target, right? Racism always hits its target. It always right. hits black folks first and worst. But it is an illusion and it is a lie to say that there is not a distorting factor of something as total as racism in America, you know, it doesn't, it distorts the way we make, you know, make decisions in this society. You know, LBJ, um, the last white man to be, uh, the last Democrat to be elected by, um, you know, majority of white people, he said, if you can convince the lowest white man that he's above the highest colored man, he won't notice if you're picking his pocket, if you make him feel better than him, you, he'll empty out his whole pocket for you. And that's really been the story of the last 50 years. But how do we change? I mean, I understand, you know, and I agree with DL, you know, there were a lot of young people who were involved in the 60s. I think the difference now is, you know, with the advent of social media and the ability to galvanize so many people at the same time. But my question is, how do we get back to a place where we can at least agree upon what is truth? 
in the post world of alternative facts. How do we at least get there? Now you have even news anchors when at one point it was, you know, taboo to even, you know, interject your personal opinions into something and to say something that was other than factual. And now I believe that we've gotten to a place where that just ebbs and flows and it shouldn't. Truth should always be truth. How do we get back there? That is the thing that scares me the most. I think of it as the information apocalypse. You know, the fact that we have disinformation psyops campaigns going, running on us 24-7. The fact that a billionaire started a right-wing network and has been, you know, completely unaccountable to the truth. That's why I'm proud of the work that Color of Change does. I serve on the board of it. And they, they go straight to the corporate actors, right? They say, we're going to attack the advertisers. We're going to attack the investors and the stakeholders. We're going to hold Facebook accountable, Twitter, YouTube. You really have to go upstream to these corporations that are selling hate for profit because it is more profitable for them to cultivate this outrage machine than it is for them to tell the straight truth. But in a democracy, we do have control. We have not updated and you know done media reform in three generations, but it's on the table now. We have got to hold these big corporate giants accountable for what they're doing to our democracy. You know what's so funny? There's not a bigger patron in the United States of America, and I don't believe this ever existed than black women. I, I just I, I don't I, I I think it's the most amazing story. I think uh, decades from now, when 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 publishers, when rich uh, white dudes don't control the narrative, their story is going to be a uh, resonant and one that people follow, uh, you know, in in civilizations to come. Um, it isn't what they think of us. It isn't the mechanism they have used against us. It is our belief in them, our inherent belief that somehow we're inferior. Our in- mm-hmm. I remember arguing with people, and they were talking, telling me about black on black crime. Well, ain't no white man ever, ain't no white man ever lived around you. The, 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 we get a special dispensation as if we're inherently uh, evil. Uh, there's no such notion as black on black crime. Crime is about proximity. If something happened yeah. to you, they would they would look most immediately at the people who are in your immediate vicinity. But this That's notion that we have bought into that somehow we are less than that somehow they're right that somehow the white man's ice is colder. If if this book does any nothing to affect them and everything the book that you've written and which I think you've done a brilliant job, uh, if if it does nothing to affect them and everything to to set to reset our metric, I think it will be an invaluable tool. I just think that we have our stories here start in the middle, and 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 so we're writing the end. So all we have is is what we were uh, in servitude, never anything before. And so when that is your your reference point. Everything you think about is going to be jaundiced, is going to be skewed. And I think more than anything else, we have to know that we were something before and obviously we'll be something after. But I think books like this and pe- that are well-researched, I bet you people read this, read your book and can't believe it happened or can't believe it's true or can't believe it because they're, they're inherently, our, our, our frequency is just not set for that. No, well, thank you for saying all those things. I think it's right. I mean, we have to know our own history, know our own truth, and also not fall for the okadoke. You know, I mean, white people need to wake up and stop falling for the okadoke. Um, of folks like Ted Cruz packing his bag, heading to Cancun, <laughs> <laughs> and not even trying to hide with it, just like out in the open. I'm telling you, I- daughters. <laughs> 
I'm telling too much white is bad for you. Like I don't care if it's rice, I don't care if it's potatoes, even cocaine got to get cut. Too much white is bad for you. I'm telling you. Um, what do you hope in the end? Obviously, you wanted to be a literary success. Obviously, you want to be a financial success. Um, those things are obviously you wouldn't have written the book. Um, you had some things that were inherent on your heart, and I think that that was the generate the, the, the ethos of how this book was written. What do you hope happens? I hope that white people who read the book stop voting against their own interests, ask when they hear, you know, right-wing people in their lives or right-wing people in the corporate media, you know, why are they selling me this story? What are they trying to gain from selling me this story that says for me to hate and distrust and disdain my black and brown neighbors? And I also hope that it makes it a little bit easier for us to move all of us, black, brown, and white, in, into the multiracial future that we're becoming. Because if we're always having our own stories, right, if it's racism is something that is bad for black people and good for white people, and I don't see how we ever come together, right? I don't see how, how we ever overcome if we don't realize that racism is a poison and the first people who drink it are the people who concocted it, right? We have got to realize that this is an old belief it was created, this hierarchy of human value, in order to justify an economic system that is no longer serving us. And so let's just get rid of it. Let's open up the hatch and kick it out into space. You, right? you, 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 you're, you are the most dangerous. I'm telling you, I, I just I think that I'm not hardened by a lot of things. I'm very cynical. Uh, and I, I think even hearing you, I want to believe I just I don't have that mechanism. But you are so hopeful that it's sickening. It, it makes me it makes me nauseous, is what it does. But and and your 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 area that you're bright, you're reasoned, uh, you're intelligent, you're well thought out, you're beautiful. You're sp- what makes you feel this fucking hopeful? Cause I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, hope has always been in the black politic, right? I mean, I can't stand here as I am right now as the descendant of enslaved people, you know, sitting here talking to you wonderful black people with the audience that you all have and that we have and not have hope. It's not possible. I grew up with my great-grandparents, both of whom lived to be over 100. I have a grandmother now who's my son's great-grandmother who is 94 today. Slavery was just behind in her shadow, right? And and I grew up with that. And here we are today. So I think, you know, politics has always been, hope has always been a part of black politics. And I think it's really important for us to keep that touchstone because our ancestors had to deal with far more, with far less. And so I can't not be hopeful, right? I mean, th- there's too much been sacrificed to get us here for me to not think we can finish the rally. You, you, uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, the problems from a policy perspective. Yeah. Uh, what are concrete policy measures that yes. would give you an indicator if things are moving in the right direction? Great! I'm so excited. <laughs> I love the policy. My love language. Finally, this thing asked me something I want to hear. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so first what is of all, we absolutely do need reparations. And some people might say, okay, well, if she's saying that racism has a cost for everyone, then maybe black people shouldn't get any special money or dispensation. That's obviously exactly wrong. 
I'm saying that one of the barriers to us getting reparations is this zero-sum idea, is white people who think that if black people get a check, it's somehow going to come out of their pocket. And that's not the case. The government is the one that enslaved us, that segregated us, that stripped our wealth over generations and denied us the ability to have it. The government, which we all fund, is going to be the one to pay. And Citigroup, no less, did a report this summer that said that if we had closed the racial economic divide 20 years ago, our economy would be $16 trillion larger. So reparations for me is seed capital for the America that we're becoming. It's seed capital for us all to flourish and thrive. It is an economic stimulus to cut those checks. So we absolutely need that. We need to cancel student loan debt. This is something that is So the me. number, the number, now, now, the current administration has banned through uh, 10,000 about, um, and, and I guess uh, progressives on the other end want 50,000. So mm-hmm. is, is it any number or is it a specific number you think achieve this goal? So listen, $10,000 in student loan debt cancellation is great. It's a lot better than just sitting there and let it collect interest and, right. and keep pushing back home ownership and retirement for the entire generation, particularly of black people um, who, you know, because of the racial wealth divide have to borrow more and at higher numbers. So $10,000 is good. Now, I've done the math. I think we need to do more. Yeah. I think $50,000 is actually the right number. These white folks, you know, were sitting up in Congress at Demos, the organization I used to run. We did a report where we calculated every single member of Congress that went to a public school, and most of them did, a public college, a state school, what they used to pay and how much because of the government cutbacks, because of the drained pool that students today had to pay. And, you know, it's a generational piece. The median age in Congress is somebody who went to college for free. So Joe Biden, bless his heart, President Biden, I don't think he gets at a gut level that this entire experiment of the debt for diploma system is racist. It's another form of financial slavery. It has nothing to do with good economics or good investments or good policy. And we've just got to get rid of it. Well, the book is The Sum of Us, What Racism Cost <laughs> Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Uh, if, if it doesn't work out, it's going to be just some of us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Heather McGee. I appreciate and it. You're delight. Thank you. I'm with <laughs> Thank you. you very much. Good luck to you. Our next guest is a celebrity chef, author, restaurateur, and chef and chief culinary advisor for Sodexo Magic. His book, A Message to My Children, is available where books are sold. Please welcome to the show, G. Garvin. What's up, young man? Hey, how you doing, man? You're looking good, but how y'all calling me celebrity chef? You know I hate that. Yeah. Well, oh. no, you don't. Well, you, you don't, don't actually hate that. That's, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> stop it. And I'm sure you love the check that comes along stop with it. <laughs> stop <laughs> it. <laughs> you can pretend like you hate exactly. it. Exactly. You, now you look, you look so distinguished, but it looks like you don't serve pork. That's no, what it looks like he doesn't. Or, you know, <laughs> no, my brother, none of that. that. No kind of potatoes, <laughs> no, none of that. No, like, my girl, brother. I don't do that. No what swan. What kind of chicken was that? Get your... You, um, it's funny because I, you're my favorite chef, um, but that's, but because you've made, I think, food 
accessible. Like it's it's, it's this mix. Like the eating isn't mysterious, and home cooking is mysterious. But like restaurant tours and and ordering at restaurants and the things that go together is kind of intimidating for for the average person. Yeah, yeah, DL man, <clears throat> you're one of my early friends, customers, and man, you know when I was in the kitchen, it wasn't very cool. Um, I just did what I do best, uh, and because of people like you and your family, I was able to, you know, continue growing and developing and turning my life into something great. Um, and for me, it's always been the same thing, transparency in food, right? I want to know that, I'm, you know, what I'm eating is good, quality product, you know, I want to know where it's from, and that's kind of what I've done. What makes uh, food good? Because, I mean, I know, because I think poor people make the best food, but it's always salted and greasy, um, so th- th- they season the shit out of it, and you don't ever really know what the taste is, right? <laughs> well, that's like, because yeah. butter makes everything better. Yeah, but that's uh, <laughs> poor people. Like we salt the shit out of shitty food, and it's it's excellent. You know what's funny? <clears throat> you know, after Sunday church, all the black women have the, the salt and the hot, right? The hot sauce in their pocket, right? So, so in their mind, it's like fuck it, just make a big batch and then season it up. You know, my philosophy, man, is Everything has, has its own identity. And as you build your layers, you know, you, guys, I'm doing an interview. As you do your layers, uh, everything has to taste good. So, and, and, and for me, man, the, it's all about the attention to detail. I'll right. tell you something, man. Right. You, and, and this is no BS, you, I think, are the funniest man alive. And it's, and it's because of the attention to detail in your jokes when you say, your mama said, you know, run my light bill up. Right. That's real. Right. But it's the, the way you express it. Right. Anybody can say, you know, parents think their light, light bill is going to be too high for right. any, any reason. But the way you say it, man, is the attention to detail. And for me, man, this is all I know. I had to do it right. I remember when uh, he used to uh, he used to serve my Christmas party until it got way too expensive. No, I remember. <laughs> Food was delicious. And then I, I was like, this happened. is the last time I'll be having this booyah base. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had his own show on TV, and he never yeah. talked to me again. No. <laughs> and he used to, I didn't know what this was, but he would, like, wipe everything off and put garnish. Like, every meal he touched. Like, and he, that was what I would learn was plating the meal. Um, yeah. Making sure, like, wiping everything off. Um, and that's, that's, to me, the kind of attention to detail you kind of alluded to, right? Yeah, man, you know, <clears throat> so I just opened my steakhouse here in Atlanta, DL. Um, we're literally 10 days, 10 days in. And 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 it is why we've started out so great, man, is because I, I want to touch every single dish. I want to make sure the sauce that is reduced down is, you know, the right consistency on every single thing we do. And it's the same with my, you know, my role with uh, Madge Johnson as Chief Culinary Advisor. You know, we're responsible, man, for about $700 million in business. Uh, and he, he makes sure uh, accountable, you know, for what we're doing with the food. So, it, it, for me, it's all about the detail. Because, you know, man, I can't go back to the hood. Right. This is all I got. <laughs> you can, I, you're the one. It's the first time you ever, I ever, because I used to always watch him cook knowing that I was never going to do it. I was like, oh, this is very interesting. But <laughs> I got a woman. What do I need to cook for? Wow. Like, what, what, what are we saying? I got somebody what, in the she shit. What, 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 what? Um, See, um, but <laughs> the first time I'm gonna let him get away with no, it. No, it's true. I'm gonna it's let like, it go. I feel like, uh, I'm gonna let it slide. How come you don't cook? Company. How come you don't tell jokes? It's, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, That's not <laughs> so disrespectful. <laughs> um, but um, hmm. 
you told me about a steak, and it, you said it only needs salt. A really good cut of meat uh, is uh, salt, pepper, and that's it. Like it, it didn't need like to be holes poked in and garlic. It, it just needed salt. Like I was like, because I, I'm used to my mother poking holes in it and and then putting garlic. It was it was crazy. And when I did it. It was just it was more flavorful than I'd ever experienced. Cause I thought I didn't like steak till then. You know what's funny, DL? <clears throat> My mom would do the same thing. She buy these cheap cuts of meat, right? And then she, she they call it tenderizing meat, so right. they eat it they with a fork, right? And then they put some red on it. They called was actually called meat tenderizer, right? I'm like, mom, that's all in your head. You know, so, so for me, man, all of our meat is wet aged. Um, it is uh, grass fed. Um, and we spend very little things to it. We do very little to it. The integrity of the meat is kosher salt and a really good oil. And we marinate the meat in uh, olive oil and garlic. And we, we, we keep it out at room temperature, right? Right before it goes on the grill. It's nice and tender. And that's all we do, man. That's all we do. But don't you think that comes with, I guess, re-educating people? Because I think for most of us, you know, you go to a restaurant and as soon as the food comes out, you reach for salt, you reach for all of these sauces to put on it without even tasting it the way the chef wanted you to experience it. So how do you get people to understand that you want them to experience the food the way it was meant to be experienced in terms of how you prepared it? Tell them they can't have no damn salt. <laughs> hey, you see this nigga? You see this nigga, right? This nigga look like sugar. Of course you can't have no salt. Are you crazy? Motherfucker, no. We don't have that. That's how you do it. <laughs> how do you tell a nigga no? That's well, you how you know, do but it. you think about it, people will say quickly, but I paid for it. I want it how I no. want it, right? But you want them to experience it the way that you prepared it. Well, let me tell you this. At Low Country Steak in Atlanta, we make our own ketchup. We make our own steak sauce. We make our own mayo. We make all of our aiolis. So at the end of the day, if you want a steakhouse, we'll give you a steakhouse, but we do not send salt to the table. Mm. And, and, and I'll be completely truthful with you. There's not one thing on my menu that has salt in it besides the steaks, and that is a black Himalayan sea salt that we use. Everything else is a, is a, a, a different seasoning method. I just don't believe we need it. You, you know it's very funny? It, it like in every walk, in every in every endeavor, uh, in every uh, uh, system, racism. It's particularly racism is in all uh, all walks of life. But I remember going uh, to a steakhouse, and because that's my favorite thing. I, like the steakhouse is just manly and dope. The ones you can just drink and smoke. <laughs> so, I, so I'm coming to yours Monday is what I'm basically saying for free. But that's not the point. What we're talking about right now is. So I go to this place, and I'm not gonna say he was a dope dude. He was cool, but. They would order steaks, and black people would order them um, um, well just done. well, well, well done. No pink at all. And if they ordered a filet, he wouldn't send it out to them. He'd send a, a, a horrible cut of meat. And he said to me, they don't know the difference anyway. So they would pay this money for this this, this uh, really expensive cut of meat, and he said he'd send it out to them anyway. And they would know because they, they fried the hell out of it. And, it, it, like, the, the way that we're treated in restaurants, like— if you go in and you want to boof, they call us boofers. Like it's it's so many things. That, like it's and 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 and, and to, to what I'm excited about your restaurant is is one of the places where you get to learn, eat, have a good meal, socialize, and feel like the person who's making the meal it, it has a connection to you in some in some respects. You know what, Dio man, I'm telling you, man, I, I love you, man. You are the realest I I know, man, and I'm and I'm, and I'm saying that in the most humble way, and I mean it sincerely. You know, 
your words are true, man. You know, you know, we've been treated like second class citizens when we go into restaurants and made to, you know, be uncomfortable if you want your steak medium well. Right? So they those things have happened historically over the years. Um, and they're not they're not factual. You know, you can order your meat medium rare or you can order it medium well. And the way the process is how it's cooked should be exactly the same, right? And it's it's unfortunate, man, but you're right. When you come to my restaurant, it's a fellowship, man. It's a fellowship. It's like you might see somebody, you know, just like the joint in LA, man. Yep. It's a steakhouse. You know, we ain't made men, but we men that's made. Right. Right. Wow. You know it's so dope. I remember the last restaurant on third, and I had never seen a black dude own a restaurant in Beverly Hills. (laughs) That was his. I'd never seen it. And so I remember Tracy Morgan coming. And Tracy Morgan would take off his shirt, and every restaurant would just run down. And it, 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 you would see, but it was just such a, a warm and welcoming environment um, that that when it left, I felt like we missed something. But I think more than anything else, um, I I can't I, I eat everywhere. I've eaten, we've seen a lot of things. But one thing that you have that I think is is very interesting is the connectivity to the community, the quality of the ingredients. The diversity in the menu, like, it's hard to take people that, I, you, I, I tasted snails, I would never would have tasted them. I never like mushrooms. <laughs> like, man, I don't like that shit. I don't like garlic or onions. But I think having a conversation with people, who, with, with a person who know, who you know know what they're doing and, and, and can show you, like, kind of, like, you would tell me where things come from and why it's important. And I think that kind of relationship is communal because we come from a place that there is very communal and that is based around the kitchen It's based around food and to t- extrapolate that out and have that in an environment where you where you can dine out and have a great experience is something different isn't the restaurant in- industry in a lot of trouble right now um the, the covid has decimated it right you know a deal to your point man you know as children you sit down and eat what your mama told you to eat right and, and, and as we get older and, you know, you know, fortunately, if we get a little money, you know, we want to know where our food is from, right? So the integrity of the product is actually about. And then, you know, second to that, you know, tonight, man, I'm doing a blackened veal chop with cheddar cheese grits and a ponzu butter with crispy onion rings. And the, the, the veal is, is uh, you know, farm raised, right? The grits are, you know, Georgia grits. But I'm telling you a story about how I created this wonderful dish that you're gonna to relate to because you trust me. And to your second point, <clears throat> yeah, man, you know, I've been open 10 days um, and I went, I prayed, um, I looked at the amount of money we had invested in, in, in the building uh, and we went ahead and moved forward. But yeah, man, we need, you know, as much money as we spend on Hennessy and Louis Vuitton, if we spend a third of that in our black owned restaurants, we'll get back. Right, right. Um... You have been integral in a lot. Like, uh, you opened a restaurant, Rain, everybody came through. Um, I remember when you used to host uh, our, our our Christmas parties, and they started to be ec- epic. One of the Smollett boys worked for you, right? Jesse, right? He worked for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm asking you a question. You don't have to. I'm not trying to. <laughs> no. Where is he? <laughs> I'm just asking you a question. I, I could be wrong. No, yeah, you wrong in the motherfucker. 
He's like, uh-uh. No, that wasn't. Okay. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Okay. Uh-uh. Okay. Uh-uh. Okay. Uh-uh. okay. No, that wasn't. Nope, nope. No? Yeah. Okay. No. Because I was going to ask you, has a sandwich ever come up missing? And somebody was beat up. Right. Well, how about we switch gears? You know what I think is important? I think it's great. That was the person that the dog had in the backyard. I think it is super great that we get to see a black chef. And I think we need to see more of them, right? Like I was telling DL, I saw this uh, this article about these guys called Ghetto Gastro, right? There are a couple of young black guys out of the Bronx who did a collaboration with Williams and Sonoma. And basically they were talking about how important it is for young black men to be okay with, you know, being in the cooking industry so that they can teach, you know, the people in their neighborhood about food, the importance of food, the importance of healthy food. How important do you think it is that more black people, whether it's male or female, get into the culinary industry? Listen, you know, I'm 52 years old and I'm truly the culinary OG. Because when I started, there was no black people on TV. There's no black people in the kitchen. And I was one of a few. And it was challenging. I, I mean, I was just constantly having to, you know, keep people in line because they, they got it confused because, you know, a black man is in the kitchen and not playing football or baseball or basketball or trying to rap or sell dope. This food didn't change my life. It saved my life. And because of what food has done for me, I've been able to save countless lives of young black men and women who would not have decided to go into culinary arts, but yet do something else. So do I think it's important? Absolutely. But you know what you got to do? You got to get more people that look like me that are willing to take an opportunity or a chance on putting more people that look like us on TV. Because right? that's the platform. And you, even even the restaurant spirit uh, is when people, it's oftentimes people's first job is uh, people who can't, uh, like, uh, if you need flexibility, it's a, it's a great job for that. Uh, people who have just coming out and kind of reinter- being, being reintroduced to society, it's a great job for that. Uh, my daughter, Ryan, you know, she just had her first uh, uh, baby, and I'm a grandfather. She learned her love, uh, like, she wanted to be a chef because of you. So she graduates from USC. And the day after she graduated, she said, I want to go to culinary school. So fuck you for that. Um, <laughs> that's one. That's one. But but the other is that what you said earlier is that it, it's so interesting that we only find, see ourselves entertaining or telling jokes or doing it. And there's so many ways to bring people to the table. You're, you're not a celebrity chef, uh, because you were a celebrity and then you became a chef, you are a celebrity chef because you your food was so good, people wanted to hang out with you and you wanted to get to, you got TV shows, you wrote books. And so I think that truly loving something can take you places to your point that you that you would never have imagined. So where have you, Man. where's the craziest place food has ever taken you? Poland. <laughs> Warsaw, Poland. Because really? of my love, I, I went to Poland and I worked in a hotel called the Sopat Hotel. I was like Mexican in America. I ain't understand shit. <laughs> I was fast, and they was like, "This is he'll, he'll work," and that's what I did, man. And you're right, you And I tell you, man, Ryan, man, Ryan is a beast. Yes, she is. Hook her butt off. She's smart. She's funny. She's a strong leader, and she's all about black excellence. I'm telling you straight yeah. up, she is all about black excellence. Um, I actually miss her. I haven't seen her in a while, but yeah, no, you know, it um. When I tell you food saved my life, man, it's real. You know, I, I got I got partners who, you know, passed on or they're locked up because they didn't have anything to do. 
Um, so this is absolutely, you know, not just something to do now on the side, but, you know, the, the food industry, man, it's $7 billion industry. You know, Rachel Ray, you know, she's making eight, nine, $100 million a year. So there's absolutely uh, equity and, and, and liquid cash that you can make doing it. Let me, let me ask you something. Is that why you wrote a book? Because every celebrity chef writes a cookbook. Like, but you wrote a book that wasn't just about recipes. It wasn't just about uh, stories around food. It was like inter- interweave, inter- uh, your, your life was uh, interweaved into it. So what was your inspiration for wanting to write a book? I just want to make black men comfortable, man. You know, every time I'm out, I see black men. They be like, yo, man, my wife the biggest fan. Yo, man, my wife loves you, man. Yo, my wife be seeing you. I'm like, nigga, you too. Or you wouldn't know who I am, right? And, and feel comfortable with that, right? Feel comfortable telling that story, telling that truth. So I just decided to put pen to pad, man. And my book is called A Message to My Children. And it's just life lessons, man. It's just everything I learned about whether it's too much cologne, right, cell phones in public. Um, just how to be a good young man, how to be a good person, and make people trust that they can put money behind you, right? Listen, Viola Davis said it. The only thing missing, you know, the only difference between success and us and them is somebody giving us the opportunity. And if you want somebody to give you an opportunity, you got to fit the profile, right? You got to do your part. So this this book is for me to help people understand you got to do your part. Man, that's amazing. You you have a lot of funny anecdotes in the book. What's the funniest thing ever happened at your your restaurant? Um, first thing that ever happened in my restaurant was Shug Knight called my restaurant one night and asked me if his wife was up in there. <laughs> Keyshawn called me and asked me if his wife was up in there. I was like, man, look, y'all, y'all got to figure it out. We fooled I know, that's right. And you fooled him because now you look just like him. It's crazy. Now. <laughs> hey, look, I do want to tell you this, though. In this book, I write, and I tell you this, I got my sticky. It says, Never sit in the front row of a D.L. Hughley show. <laughs> Look, let me tell you why I wrote that. Because before I ever met you, you performed at the Roxy. Man, you look like you was maybe 12. Yeah, that was Roxy, right? yeah. It's now the Buckhead Theater. You killed it. I wasn't even supposed to be in there because I think they're probably a little older than me, not by much. But I but I actually snuck in the back door, right? And I was up in the, in the audience, peeking over the rail, that was sitting up front or you killed them. <laughs> I, I remember your last restaurant. We got so drunk. We got so drunk that he had to follow me to the hotel, like, behind me. Like, it, it was, uh, I'm so glad you have uh, another restaurant because I, I really hope people get to experience the things that we, we, we've talked about. But the other thing, you're just a good man doing what he's supposed to do and, and, and giving light out with it. So uh, I just, I, I, I hope that everybody who gets a chance to, uh, gets a chance to sit uh, at your table and just get a little of that light you give, man. You're, you're, you're dope. Hey, D.L., I love you, man. Um, I appreciate you. Um, you know, you, you, you've always been a man of integrity, um, you know, which is why you have such a great family because you lead by example. Um, and I can tell you honestly, man, and I've never, um, because of your blessings early on in my career, <clears throat> I was able to achieve things um, because you trusted me, and I can say you trusted me. And I sit here today, man, because of opportunities like you 
uh, and your amazing wife has given to me over the years, man. So thank you, and thank you for today. Thank man. you, man. So I'm going to eat and drink some shit up at Low Country Steak in Atlanta. So <laughs> <laughs> put it on my tab, nigga. <laughs> G-Garb. G-Garb. Right, thank, thank you, man. You. Thank you.